0: Amen. Well, the title of this morning's sermon is Religious Sinners Are Guilty. Religious Sinners Are Guilty. As I was thinking about religious sinners, it's much like you would say self-righteous sinners, but maybe even one step beyond that as we think about these three different categories or types or subsets, all all one humanity, but three subsets of people that Paul has been talking about in these first sections here of Romans, starting in chapter 1, verse 19, and, and working our way, sorry, 1, verse 18, I believe. Yeah, 1, verse 18, working the way all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, this treatise that he's building about how all men stand guilty before God regardless of how they're characterized. And we've looked at the overtly immoral individual, which was intended to be everybody. Everybody should have looked at Paul's discussion of that and said, yep, that's me. Certainly that's me at times. Certainly that's me more often than it ought to be, especially when we got to descriptions like being proud. when We got to descriptions about being whisperers and gossips and slanderers. when We got to descriptions about being disobedient to parents and unloving. When we got to the descriptions that talked about us lacking discernment, certainly we were supposed to see ourselves in that, just as every person on the planet was supposed to see themselves in that, but Paul's entire audience was supposed to see themselves in that. But we know that Paul knew that some of them wouldn't see themselves in that. And so there was a discussion in the beginning of chapter 2 here about those that would somehow read that and think it applied to everyone else but them, and they would in fact have this judgmental, self-righteous perspective as it related to others. And Paul was quick to tell them, no, the very things that you judge another with, you yourself are guilty of. Don't con yourself. You're just as guilty as the next. Well, now we're gonna be talking about, as you're thinking about, if you wanna characterize it as three different roads or lanes that are all on one road that's leading to destruction. Destruction only caused by man's rejection of Jesus Christ. Not by man's sinfulness, but by man's rejection of the solution to man's sin, which was the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, if man rejects Christ, there's a number of different ways for man to do that or express that rebellion and rejection mentally. And Paul is laying out this picture, and I hope you're seeing this picture of it's one road leading to the same place, but maybe there's three Lanes on it, you'd say, uh, an immoral person, an overtly immoral person, doesn't even make any excuses. They Actually, it says, not only do they do the same things, but they approve of them that practice these things. They have no shame about it, as you looked at the 32nd verse of chapter 1. They don't even have any shame about it, so maybe that's one category. Then there's people that do have some shame about it because they think that they don't stink. They think everyone else in the locker room needs deodorant except for them. You ever experienced that before? And someone might kind of gently say, "Hey, yeah, give it two swabs, you know, under each." And and so there's that person that he knows. So we call that the self righteous person. Some people label that the the moral man. But now we're going to be talking about this religious man, the person who is still on that road of rejection and rebellion, but he's doing it with a mentality of, my religion can save me, my religion sets me apart from others, my religion absolves me of the need that others have, but I myself don't have. And so as I was thinking about religious sinners are guilty, it made me think of this phrase, and perhaps you've heard it, close but no cigar. Close, but no cigar. And I've said that phrase, or I've heard that phrase over the course of my life. Show of hands who's heard that phrase, close, but no cigar. Uh, How many of you know what it means? Oh, you got a couple. Okay, good. I had to Google it, so I'm not going to act like I'm some elitist here who knows what these things mean. You say phrases, have no idea where they came from. Close, but here's where it comes from. The saying comes from the practice of giving cigars as prizes for winning games at carnivals in the United States in the earlier early 1900s. You only got a cigar for winning, though, not just coming close, so close, but no cigar. You either win or you lose. And so as you're thinking about some of the religious minded people who maybe have more sincerity, they maybe have a deep love for God in a general sense, but they want to approach God on their terms. Certainly, these, the Jewish mindset that we're going to get into of the religious Jew who is rejecting the work of Jesus Christ, this is who Paul was dealing with frequently, That they would have that mindset where they had a special sensitivity toward God. They were God's chosen nation. They had access to God's truth. We're going to see in the start of chapter 3, there were some advantages, some distinct advantages from a spiritual perspective of being identified with the Jewish nation. But if you put your confidence in that identification culturally, nationally, you put your identification in the rituals associated with being a Jew instead of faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, Paul's going to say, you still remain in this place where you have the same problem as everyone else, you're a sinner who lacks the righteousness that you desperately need. And so, the saying effectively describes those who respond to God through, catch this word, sincere, human devotion, and self-effort, but they ultimately still miss the mark. And religious Jews in Paul's day, much like Christ's day, saw access to God in terms of keeping the law, With a merit based mentality that caused them to look down on others and believe they were already righteous before God on the basis of their human performance. Now, this perspective represents an extension of the self righteous sinner's mindset that we observed previously in this chapter. And it remains prevalent today this idea that I already am performing well enough that I don't need God's grace. They miss the part where I need God's substitution, I need God's provision, I need God's mercy, I need God's grace to do for me what I could never do for myself, which is to make me right with God positionally, judicially be in a right standing with God. And so, of course, that's something that is a challenge for one who is raised in religion or raised even as this religious Jew with the idea of keep the law, 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 which was all good, it was all appropriate, it was all given by God. They had even made a promise, all that you say we will do. But yet, the law could never justify a man before God, the keeping of the law. It was accepting by faith and responding to God's truth about his provision to meet man's sinfulness that could justify a man. And there's, there's some... You know, debates about what exactly had to be understood. But I'll tell you this man had to understood that, understand that they couldn't save themselves. I'll, t- I'll tell you that at a minimum. They're going to have to have understood that they lacked the ability or the capacity to rescue themselves from their own fallen state. That it would have to be through God's provision that they could be rescued. And by taking God at His word, responding to what God had revealed to them. And it was progressive revelation. It wasn't always the same amount of truth, not the exact same truth. And so that is still, though, you think about today, it's prevalent today where you have people who have this mindset that I'm responding to these traditions that I've learned, these religious rituals that have been taught. Now, in the case of mankind today, they're not even rituals given from God. They're purely man-made rituals. But in the case of Others, speaking to the religious Jew here, they were originally given by God. But the idea that doing my best to outshine the one next to me is in fact what makes me righteous before God, that thinking was ultimately the problem. So Paul, he anticipates this attitude from religious Jews. Why? Because he shared that perspective prior to getting saved. That was his whole mindset, having been raised by a Pharisee, Having been taught by a Pharisee, having been raised to be a Pharisee, Paul, a Jewish individual, this is all he knew until he had an encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. You see, at some point in every man's life, they need to come to a place where they make a decision about Jesus Christ and Paul had a decision to make there. He could have said no. No. I'm not going to respond to this con- being confronted by God's truth about Jesus Christ. Remember, Christ had already come. Paul is sort of late to the party in terms of apostles. He's the last, last one along. And so Christ has already come. There's already many followers of Christ, and Paul is actively persecuting them. Because he hasn't been able to write, wrap his mind around the idea that the works of the law, the deeds of the law, being a Jew in and of itself, having been circumcised in and of itself, that can never save a man. But faith alone in God's provision to deal with man's sinfulness, having Christ already having come, the person and work of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, that's where man's faith needs to lie in order for him to be justified before God. And that's the case that Paul is laying out and building towards. And this is the mentality that he's going to address head on in this section we're going to look at this morning. Now by way of mini review, just to bring some of you up to speed who maybe haven't been here, we started our Romans series by identifying the general theme as the gospel of salvation. He's talking about that from the very early part of the chapter, but you can look at verse 16 where he says, well, 15, so as much as in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you. That's my purpose in writing. I want to come and visit you, and when I do, I want to preach the gospel to you. The gospel meaning a message of good news about who Jesus is and what he's done for a lost and dying world. So he says, so much as is in me, with all of, with all of my being, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. He says, I've been preaching this wherever I go. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is, the gospel is, the power of God to salvation, that brings about salvation for everyone who what? Believes. Everyone who believes. With no no distinction between Jew and Gentile is how he ends that verse, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So we see that the gospel message was said to reveal in part the righteousness of God. The gospel starts off by explaining that man has a problem. Houston, we have a problem. Man man has a need. And after man being aware of his need, only then could a man look for the rescue that is offered through the salvation of Jesus Christ. Salvation found through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So in a sense, the the gospel message reveals the righteousness of God and, and it reveals man's problem. So beginning in chapter 118, then and running again through 320, Paul's letter explains the dilemma humanity faces as it relates to God's righteous standard. And what is that dilemma? That man lacks the righteousness that he needs in order to be judicially determined to be right with God. Apart from that, man faces God's wrath and condemnation, faces an eternity separate from God. So he continues on then in verses 24 through 32 of the first chapter, we observe the universal nature of man's lack of righteousness. And again, it was demonstrated by overtly immoral sinners who weren't even ashamed of it. I've already touched on that. Then we moved on to addressing self-righteous sinners in the first five verses of chapter 2. Last week, in chapter 2, 6 through 16, we saw that all men who reject Jesus Christ will be judged in the future on the basis of their works, on the basis of their deeds, and ultimately they'll face God's wrath. Now this week's section is often associated as directly directed generally at religious sinners. Now it's going to be directed at religious Jews because these are the only people who were sincerely seeking after God but getting it wrong because they were putting their focus in their human effort or works instead of faith alone, by grace alone and Christ alone. You could The idea of being justified by works is, is going to be held up in contrast by the Apostle Paul throughout this letter to being justified by faith. Justified by faith or justified by works and they were in the camp of Attempting to be justified by works. Now, although the context specifically addresses Jews, it applies generally to anyone attempting to achieve a righteous standing before God on the basis of religious identification, in in their case, being a member of the Jewish nation. Somebody else that might be being identified with a particular church. Or rule-keeping, or rituals, divorced from an underlying response, Now, not every ritual in and of itself is bad. Some of them are symbolic. They remind us of or they picture certain aspects of faith that we would do well to remember. Thinking of even a, a ritual like, if you want to call it a ritual, I guess, being baptized. The Bible is explicitly clear. Baptism cannot save you. But baptism is an appropriate and beautiful picture of the salvation provided by Jesus Christ as we now, through that ceremony, are identified with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We were, we were already identified spiritually. We were spiritually baptized the moment of our salvation. Now, if we go through a ritual or a physical observance that is symbolic, It's not what identifies me with Christ, it's symbolic of the identification I already have as a result of my faith in Christ's finished work on my behalf. Now I have this symbolic testimony that was intended to be public, uh, a public testimony of my identification with Jesus Christ. But it in and of itself is just frankly getting me wet. I, I go through this as a way of proclaiming I'm on team Jesus. I'm identified with, I'm willing to be known as one of his. I'm identified with his death, burial, and resurrection on my behalf. But you realize that for that to have any effect, I already would have to be spiritually baptized and identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A baptism by the Spirit of God is He came the moment of salvation to indwell me instead of residence within me. And then it's a privilege, it's given as an opportunity for me to, what prevents me? There's water. What prevents me from being baptized? As a declaration, an external declaration of my internal faith. But it doesn't save. It's it's symbolic of that, but it doesn't save. So here, Paul's going to demonstrate that these religious individuals who are, again, they're relying on rituals divorced from underlying, an underlying response of faith. They're relying on rule keeping. Divorced from an underlying response of faith. They're relying on their religious identification. Again, divorced from an underlying response of faith. It, was it fine to be a, of Jewish heritage? Yeah, absolutely. Was, it, was there any, any shame in that? No, it was, it was wonderful. But if you're relying on that to justify you before God or make you right with God, you've missed the point. Was the law or what God had laid out, let's speak to the moral law, what God had laid out in the moral law, was there something bad about that? No, it was given from God. It represented God's standards of what was right. So if the power of the Spirit of God working inside the the new believer would convince or cause a person to say, hey, I want to let you lead in my life, Lord. I want to walk by means of your spirit, by the direction of your spirit. And if the spirit of God was producing a godly way of life in the yielded believer's life, would that life be compatible with God's standards laid out in the moral law? Well, absolutely. Would the spirit of God ever direct you in a way that would violate what he said to be right? No. But would you be keeping the moral law because you were focused on buckling down and trying so hard as a new believer? Now that I'm saved, I'm going to figure out a way to never violate these principles. Friend, if you're trying to do that in your own strength, you're already violating those principles. You're already worshiping yourself instead of the Savior. It's already idolatry in your heart. There's already pride in your thinking. When somehow you think a wretch like me who needed to be saved by God's grace now all of a sudden has all the, th- the tools that are necessary to live the Christian life through his own strength. Are you kidding me? But that's what we think. I had to see I was hopeless and helpless and hellbound. had nothing to offer God, had no strength of my own. I needed to rest in Him completely in order to be saved, to put my confidence in what Jesus Christ had done for me, exclusive of anything that I could do to contribute to the cause. But now that I am God's child, you say that I'm, gonna, I'm not going to live my Christian life through my own strength? I'm going to buckle down and produce this and perform this through human effort? No, you're not. You might think that you can, but you're not going to be able to. It's only through the power of God working in you that you're going to be able to live a life that would bring God honor and glory. And so that's what Paul's getting at here. Rule keeping isn't wrong in and of itself. Being identified with a certain nationality, certainly Jewish, not, nothing wrong with that, even certain rituals, if you want to call them that, symbolic things, they, nothing in, an, in and of itself wrong with it so long as you're not trusting in those things. And of course, some of them would directly violate Scripture, and so we'd say, no, that, there would be a problem with that. But Paul's just trying to demonstrate that those things, they don't help your cause. Those things cannot save. You, even though you do those things, if you've rejected and rebelled against God, you're still seen by God in your sin. You're still under God's wrath because you've rejected his solution to your sinfulness. Now, we've got a bunch of verses to get through here this morning, so let's start with verses 17 through 20. Let's read them together, because, again, we're going to shift gears a little bit here. Same theme, though. That's why, in a sense, you could even read this on your own, and you'd get the same takeaway. The takeaway is that it doesn't matter who you are. You're still a sinner in need of a Savior. You still lack the righteousness that you desperately need. Verse 17, indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law and make your boast in God, and know His will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. So, Paul's going to continue his argument here regarding universal guilt and lack of righteousness by addressing these Jewish individuals that are in this audience of mixed ethnicity. We know that this church is m- made up of a mixture. Earlier in chapter 1, he ad- addressed Gentiles uh, very directly, and now he's addressing Jews uh, very directly here. So we have this mixed, again, group. Now, the introduction here, when you look at this word, this phrase, indeed you are called a Jew, it would be better translated as assuming that, assuming that you are called a Jew, So he's speaking to a whole church and now he's saying to the part within that church that's Jewish, assuming that you are called a Jew, and then he's going to go on and he's going to describe a mentality that is predominant amongst religious Jews who have rejected Jesus Christ. Now Paul's objective here is to convince Jews that they too, just like everybody else, lack the righteousness needed to get to heaven on the basis of human merit, They lack the righteousness that is needed to get to heaven on the basis of human merit. Now, some of them already thought we're automatically going to be a part of God's eternal kingdom just by virtue of our ethnicity, by virtue of our having been circumcised, by virtue of our keeping the law, by virtue of God having given us the law, by virtue of God's promises to Abraham in general. That's going to individually save every one of us or have us be a part of God's eternal kingdom, just on that basis of being having been born into that culture alone. And Paul's going to set the record straight here. But we have to first look at the Jewish sinner's mindset. Because the reason that the self-righteous person rejects God is because they don't think they need God. The reason that the religious man rejects God is because they don't think they need God. They think they already have the access to God that they that everybody else is then seeking. They feel like I've already made it. And so look at these five general descriptions that we're gonna see here. The First one is you rest on the law. You rest on the law. That's the mindset here. You're putting your confidence on the law. And it pictures blind and mechanical reliance on the Mosaic law. They put their confidence in the fact that God gave the law to them without realizing that this alone failed to make them righteous having God's truth but not responding to it, not seeing that the whole thing was to point you to your need for God's rescue. That was the symbolism of the sacrifices you've been doing for all of these years, going back to at the appointed time, Cain and Abel offered sacrifices to God. God had given them some direction. He had given somebody some directions so that they knew there was an appointed time. And he had told them, this is the way to approach me. On the basis of an innocent being sacrificed in the place of the guilty. A picture of the shedding of the blood of an innocent so that the guilty would not be judged. The guilty could go free. Now how much did they understand? Ask them when you get to heaven. You could speculate all you want about it. But they understood some of it. It was passed along from person to person. It was pictured throughout the Bible, speaking of the Old Testament leading up to the cross of Christ, pictured over and over again, whether you're talking about the exodus from Egypt, whether you're talking about the Passover blood, whether you're talking about one one ship that could provide rescue with one door and, and one God giving some direction that I can be the one who can rescue you. Now, was it clear? Was, was, was all of it crystal clear? No, was some of it clear? Well, the New Testament authors seem to think so. Jesus seemed to think so. As he said, looking back at these things, that these things were speaking of me. As a serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. This idea of the suffering of the Savior can be found. Now, certainly a conquering king is found too. Certainly this idea that there would be this physical rescue was in view. But the idea that man had a need for God's rescue can be found symbolically through illustrations throughout the Old Testament. And you say, how much did they know? How much did they realize? How much did they understand? I don't know. Read some of what David has to say. Read some about Read some of what Solomon must have been aware of if God made him the wisest man to ever live. What what do you think he would have understood? It's irrelevant to you and I. We're asked to respond to the truth in front of us just like they were asked to respond to the truth in front of them. And there's some examples given later in Romans of people who had an opportunity, they had a decision to make, they came to a fork in the road. They could either trust God. They could look up vertically. They could say, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to take you at your word. I'm going to respond in faith to what you say is true, regardless of what I think. Or they could look to themselves, look in the mirror, trust them, their own guidance, look horizontally, look at the, the wisdom of the world, look at the thinking of the world, look at what other nations said and did. They could do that too, but they had these choices to make, but they resting in the law. Second one is you make your boast in God. You make your boast in God. It refers to the pride associated with being God's chosen covenant people. Now, was there anything wrong about that? No. But that wasn't what was going to justify you. That didn't make you righteous. The idea is you brag about your special relationship with God. See, the religious Jews believed that they had a monopoly on God when the truth is God wanted to use them to be lights to the Gentile nations. They missed the whole point. They weren't, God was just not the Savior of the Jews. He was the Savior of the world. He wasn't just the Jehovah of the Jewish nation. He was the God of all mankind. He wanted them to be a reflection of God's light into the darkness. And truth be told, God was working with other men of faith at other places in other nations besides just the nation of Israel too. Thin evidence of that. But you see examples of people that were not connected to this that still had God's truth. One example you could read about would be Melchizedek. But there's other examples. Job is somebody you could read about. People that had been a part of this and branched out. Some of them took God's truth with them. Sometimes it was perverted over time, but just this was the same as what happened to the truth that was given to the nation of Israel. The traditions of man became more important than the actual teaching that God had given. So you make your boast in God. Now, there were some great advantages the Jews had when you think about this special relationship that they had with God as His covenant nation. And Paul's going to discuss those briefly to begin chapter 3. Now what's the third way that this Jewish sinner's mindset is described? You know his will. So you rest on the law, you make your boast in God, and you know his will. And it refers to the self-confidence associated with possessing an awareness and understanding of God's desires, God's determinations, God's inclinations, God's purpose. That's what we mean when we think about this word that's translated as will here. God's desires, determinations, Inclinations and purpose. And the idea is you know what God wants or expects. And, and was that an advantage? Yes. But could that justify you? No. Fourth thing, you approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law. And the idea of approve here is it involves both testing and then approving what passes the test. You've considered these things, exercise some discernment. The idea is you know what is right because you have been taught His law. Was that an advantage to the Jew? Yes, is that an advantage to the Christian who who says that they're a Christian having rejected Jesus Christ but has access to God's truth? Having access to the truth is an advantage, but if it still causes you to reject Christ, then you're not. It hasn't helped. It hasn't helped. The last description here, number five here, is you are confident. And now there's a bunch of confidence statements here. You were confident that you're a guide to the blind. You're confident that you are a light to those who are in darkness. That was their mission. It was intended to be their mission, but they weren't actually shining the right light. You're confident that you are an instructor of the foolish and a teacher of babes, meaning you know so much more than everyone else, but you don't know Christ. You're confident that you have the form and the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You're confident of that. You're sincere but you've rejected Christ. These things can't make you righteous. So, Paul is speaking to a generalized sense of spiritual superiority that plagued the typical Jewish mindset of the day. And remember that Paul knows what he is talking about. He was one of them, he was just like them. So, we move on to this next section, verses 21 through 24. Verse 21, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? These are all rhetorical questions. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? He's saying you're guilty of all of this indirectly. You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? And the answer is supposed to be yes. I see that. I see that I'm guilty. Then you see, the, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you as it is written. So we break down this section. It feels very similar to chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, relative to the self-righteous sinner. In fact, there's significant overlap between the self-righteous and the religious. They're one and the same thing very often, or I would say most often. It represents a call here for self-reflection and honest, honesty. Do you actually practice what you teach or preach is the idea. Do you actually practice what you teach or preach? And the anticipated answer, just like in the beginning of chapter 2 here is, do you think that you who judge another, that you think that you're innocent? You yourself are guilty. If you're honest, you know that these things aren't true. See, what is the underlying problem? The problem is that the religious Jew had knowledge of the truth and he proudly professed it to others but he failed to honestly apply it to himself. We call that hypocrisy. That's something that completely different context because he's speaking to unbelievers here in this context. He's trying to convince the one that has this kind of mindset that they stand guilty before God and they're in their need of a savior. But we who already have the savior, we speak and we spout and we preach God's truth, at least the parts that we think we have no problem with or that we're doing well with, sometimes we do it from good motives because we want just to elevate God's truth. Nothing wrong with that. But Sometimes we do it in a way of trying to make other people feel bad about themselves or to make ourselves feel better about them or to point out a speck in their eye while we have beams in our own eyes. And when we're, hip, when we're hypocrites and we preach things about God that may be true, but people through a casual observance of our lives would see that we don't live that, we don't practice what we preach, it undermines the message. It makes that message less effective than it otherwise would be. See, it's much easier to tell others what is right than to do what is right ourselves. That's a fact. It's much easier to tell others what is right than to do what is right ourselves. Now, Paul makes this point with this series of these rhetorical questions. Now, these questions are designed to show universal guilt and condemnation. I'm not going to go into it in great detail. They're designed to show universal guilt and condemnation. He uses, do you, are you taught like you're teaching others? No. Do you steal? He uses theft. Do you steal? Yes. They're supposed to see that. Well, I don't steal. Do you take things that are God's and use them for yourself? Do you prioritize yourself over sacrifice to Him as led and motivated and directed by God's Spirit? Do you steal His time, His resources, His talents and use them for self gain instead of letting the Lord use those in your life to magnify Himself? Remember, he's in the business of, one, wanting us to enjoy him. But as we enjoy him, he's wanting to use us to make himself bigger. Not because he's so full of himself. Though he is the only true God, he's preeminent over anything else. But that's not his motive. His motive in being made bigger or magnified or glorified is so that people would turn to him in faith. Remember, as he speaks to human beings... His purpose is that he has a love for the world. His mentality is that he has love for the world. He can't overlook his righteousness and justice and holiness, and so he will judge sin, but he doesn't want to judge sin. He loves people desperately, not some people, but all people, all people everywhere. So God, when he's asking you to lift him up, isn't so that he can just pat himself on the back and say, wow, look how wonderful I am. He is wonderful, but that's not his motive. Why was Jesus lifted up on a cross? So that all men could be drawn to him. That's why. And is he worthy of being lifted up? Is he worthy of being exalted? Is he preeminent? Yes, all that is true. So we had theft. Then how about adultery? Adultery adultery that just means to be unfaithful we always have a way of applying that to the one area we are faithful think of all the facets of your life and think of all the places you haven't been faithful to god's plan god's purpose god's will god's direction through his word this this is how this is how i'd like to direct your your thinking now god is not about outcomes so much as he is about the thinking behind the outcomes. Yes, he'll take the outcomes, but he doesn't fixate on the outcomes. He focuses on our thinking. And so God, he's directing us into a relationship with him. He wants us to enjoy him. Never forget that God is not seeking to be focused on the micro details of your life. God's seeking to have you enjoy him relationally, to walk in dependence on him, to trust him, to collapse into his wonderful arms. Have you ever go along singing to yourself? What a fellowship, what a peace divine, leaning on the everlasting arms. He's looking for us to rest, friends, not strive and work. He's not about our performance. He's about our thinking. He wants us to rightly relate to him. But as we're rightly relating to him, we're not having this Outcome or byproduct that shows a lack of faithfulness to his perspective, his priorities, his truth. You keep going on with these examples idolatry, to worship anything, make it bigger than God. The the hands are supposed to be going up, friends. As he speaks to these people, they're, they're supposed to be saying, Yes, I see that I'm guilty. Idolatry, making something else of greater importance than God. Lawlessness. These are just illustrations. Now, some might not admit guilt in any of these areas directly, but how about, again, indirectly? You put on a good show externally, but what about internally? You see, the language of verse 16 regarding God's judgment focuses on the secrets of men's hearts. Not just what they were doing to please man so that man would say, oh, what a wonderful Pharisee. We have that Pharisee mindset, don't we, at times? God is after what's on the inside, and we'll get to that in a minute. See, Paul ends this section with a very pointed statement of accusation. Look at verse 24. This is the idea. No wonder the scriptures say that Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. The idea is, despite your religious superiority, you are a very poor example of righteousness. Righteousness. You see, many Christians today, again, exude a spiritual, moral superiority. Always focused on the few things that they don't have a hang-up with. And those are the things that they look down their nose at other people in society about. They can't wait to point out somebody who's struggling in a certain area that they know is wrong and they themselves are not presently struggling with. Their life is a train wreck behind the scenes, but they can't wait to find somebody who's a little bit more broken down than them. That's you when you're not thinking straight. That's me when I'm not thinking straight. We love to judge the wounded because we don't see ourselves as broken. We love to get together with some other self righteous legalists and have a mindset that says, Can you believe these people? It's not us. Can you believe this? You see this going on? How could they? (laughs) The pride's just dripping off of us sometimes, friends. Remember the pit that you're dug from. Okay, praise the Lord. He's given you some victory over certain things in your life. But even Paul says, I have not arrived I have not attained, I keep pressing on toward the mark of the high calling. There's nothing worse for the testimony of Christ than to preach grace, but fail to teach other, treat others in grace. There's nothing worse for the cause of Christ than to say that the world equals emptiness, but then pursue the thinking and the things of the world relentlessly. There's nothing worse for the cause of Christ your testimony, than to say that God is important and living by faith is crucial, but yet prioritize everything else and walk by sight. Your words mean nothing then. Look at verses 25 through 27. That's what he's trying to convince them of. For the circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become useless it's like you never had it, uncircumcision. Therefore, if, any, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, people can do that without being circumcised. Will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Isn't it just the same thing? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? you're thinking about this, of course, most of you know maybe the, the general gist of circumcision. It was something that was, it symbolized the covenant between God and Abraham and his descendants. You can read about it first in Genesis 17, 9 through 14. It was the expression of Israel's national identity. It was required for all Jewish men. It was a physical reminder to Jews of their national heritage and privilege. Many were confident that it sealed their position with God. So then you have this contrast he's setting up between keeping the law and breaking the law. He's saying this is the ultimate issue. It doesn't matter if you're self-righteous. It doesn't matter if you're religious. You're not ultimately keeping the law. You're actually breaking the law. And he's connecting back to this hypothetical justification uh, that could be accomplished by keeping the law from verse 13. If it was possible, yes, God would justify you on that basis, but it's not possible. See, following one aspect of the law, circumcision, only has value in terms of justification if you obey all of God's laws. If you don't obey God's law completely, you are no better off than the uncircumcised Gentile. You must keep the whole law. Look at Galatians 5, 3 here. And I testify to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You don't don't pick and choose. There's this covenant agreement, a handshake, if you will, where they said, all that you say, we will do. But certainly they didn't do that. And it was to show them that you could not be righteous before God by keeping the law because you're not keeping the law. James 2.10 says similar thing. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of the all, meaning you can't pick part. You can't be somewhat successful. It's all or nothing. See, the conclusion is that a Jewish sinner is in the same predicament as a non-Jewish sinner, and this thought would be revolutionary for Jews who considered themselves far superior to Gentiles. Your identity, your, in terms of your cultural identity, can't save you. The law can't save you. Your circumcision can't save you, in terms of being justified before God. And the irony of this is that the religious Jew thought having been entrusted with the law and externally appearing to keep it, knowing that Paul is saying you're not, but externally appearing to keep it made them right with God. In fact, though the law was actually condemning them because it revealed sinfulness universally. Look at what Jesus says in John five forty five. He says, do you think that I shall accuse you to the Father? Do I have to be the one who condemns you? He says, there is one who accuses you, and that's Moses in whom you trust. In what sense? The Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law. That's what condemns you. That's what makes you guilty, in a sense. Remember, this whole section is demonstrating that all are sinners, all are guilty, all are deserving God's judgment. Now, let's look at these last two verses. For he is not, verse 28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. It was about a right relationship of faith in God. It was about trusting God. It wasn't specifically about the deeds of the law. It wasn't about the details of the law. It was about the heart response to being confronted with God and his truth, God living among them, the kind of glory of God, even in the tabernacle, God leading by day and night the nation of Israel. But coming to God on the basis of trusting God, the basis of faith, taking God at his word, See, Paul ends this section by explaining that you are not right with God simply because you were born of Jewish parents or because you went through the ceremony of circumcision. The idea is that being a true Jew involves a heart response of faith, not following or keeping the law. And you can see this idea about circumcision of the heart and how it differs from just mechanically trying to keep the law apart from a response of faith and dependence in God. Look, Here it is. Deuteronomy ten sixteen a This is part of Moses' closing instructions to the nation of Israel before he died. He tells them, therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Does that mean he didn't want them to any longer keep the covenant sign of circumcision physically? No, that wasn't the point. The point was you need to have a heart response to God. What you guys are missing is that you don't you're not having a heart that is responding to God, trusting God, a response of faith, taking God at His word. Jeremiah says, Oh, I had it up there already, something similar in Jeremiah 4, 4, where he says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart. You see, man's external response to God's practical instructions or commandments, including the Mosaic Law, is always secondary. Let me say that again. It's always secondary to the greater spiritual issue. And the greater spiritual issue is the heart motivation behind that response. A response that is just purely done apart from a heart response God can't honor. God God honors the heart that is seeking Him, trusting in Him, depending on Him, walking by faith in Him. And you see a couple of passages here that speak to this. God is after a heart response. Psalm 51, 16 and 17 says, And you, meaning God, do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. Now, does that mean God didn't want them to keep his instructions regarding sacrifice? No. He's saying empty and hollow sacrifices, divorced or devoid from faith. You don't have any pleasure in that, God. The real sacrifices, is, you could insert there, the real sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, humility, a dependence on God, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. What does First Samuel 16, 7b say? For the Lord does not see as man sees, but the Lord looks at the heart. Men in that example, they were looking externally at who should be the king. God says, I am not concerned about the external so much as I am the internal. The external is a byproduct of the internal. You say, you say that's a purely New Testament truth. No, it's not. This is is something that God's been saying all along. I'm after your heart. I want you to trust me. I want you to depend on me. When you operate independently from me, you do not prosper. You will not thrive. There is no hope. Hope is found in trusting in me to do for you what you could never do for yourself. You see, God, first and foremost, for all men... Everywhere, for all time, desired men to have a response to him of faith, to depend on him, to trust him, to exalt him, to be a reflection of him, to worship him, to attract other men and women to him. God is the focus of it all. But it starts from the heart. Now you see this last phrase, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Whose praise is not from men, but from God. He's talking about the true Jew. The true Jew doesn't get his praise from men. The The true Jew is one who has a heart response of faith to God. And his praise doesn't come from men, it comes from God. See, the religious mindset, like that of the Jews Paul is addressing here, it always focused on the praise of men more than the praise of God. And Jesus addressed this often. We don't have time for it, but read Matthew chapter 6, 1 through 18 for your devotion this week. Matthew 6, 1 through 18. Uh, Jesus gives a number of examples of how there's these religious men that are doing everything they're doing with the idea of getting the praise of men. And Jesus says, Well, you have your reward then. You'll get that. The money that you give, praying in public, trying to do all the right things for the wrong reasons. You'll have your reward but the thing you should be seeking after is a right relationship with me instead. See, people naturally lust after the approval and acceptance and praise of men. That's not, that's not what this, this is about that in the context of those that reject Jesus because they're more focused on themselves and what they can do for God instead of focusing on their need and what God has done for them. But in our lives, there's an application here, right? We so desperately want people to think we're pretty good guys, that's why we sit around with each other in groups and we judge the wounded. That's why we love to look in society and find people that are worse than us, that are despising God's truth even perhaps, that are living in sin, which they may be doing. But we love to talk about it. We love to point it out. We, we love to have an indignation about it. Yet we don't give God the freedom to actually make changes in our own lives and fix our own brokenness. We don't see that when we're walking in the flesh, we're walking with human sight, that we're just as evil as anyone else because the evil within us is directing our steps. Now, it's, it's sugar-coated. It's, all, it's like a polished turd on the outside that I talk about. It's all shiny, but it's still something ugly. Looks good. We get really good at that. And we forget that when God's not the one directing our thinking, we're just as prob- we have just as big a problem as anyone else. You see, man has this universal righteousness problem. The underlying issue is that all have sinned and he's now gone through these three different categories. That's true for overtly immoral sinners. That's true for self-righteous sinners. That's true for religious Jews and Gentiles. They're still sinners. The, the end conclusion here is they're sinners. And in the coming verses, Paul is gonna conclude, he's gonna conclude this presentation about man's need. With that conclusion, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then he's going to begin giving us details about God's solution to meet man's need, and that's where we'll move to next. Well, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here this morning. Some people call it communion. Some people call it the Lord's Supper. I think I mix and match between the two, but that's what we're going to be doing here this morning. And if you're not familiar with what that is, it's a remembrance The best way I could describe it is it's a remembrance. It's an opportunity for those who have already put their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ to remember what he's done for them. Now, the Bible gives some general instructions about breaking bread and drinking the cup and doing this as a remembrance of what Jesus Christ has done. You could do it many different ways. It says as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. You could do it very often. You could, you could have an intentional time of remembrance every time you have a meal with your family. You could celebrate what, what the Lord has done in a very intentional way. You could talk about Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection, his sacrifice every time you have a meal. We could have it every time we have a church fellowship night. We could move this to the first Wednesday of the month and do communion on those nights. And then we could actually break bread together and have a meal together like we generally have a meal on church fellowship nights the first Wednesday of the month. We could do that. We could do it the first Sunday of the month and the first Wednesday of the month. We could do it the first Sunday of the month and the third Sunday of the month and the second Wednesday of the month. We could have a special communion gathering on Thursdays at 10 o'clock in the morning. The point is that as a congregation, as a body of believers, we've been asked to be intentional about remembering what Jesus has done collectively. That we could together, when we're together, we could say, hey, let's take a moment And let's be very intentional about remembering Christ's body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us. Now just in passing, quickly I'm gonna tell you this. If you have never put your faith in the finished work of Christ alone, you have nothing to celebrate or remember. It's for believers, believers who are remembering what Christ has done for them and how they came to put their faith in what Christ had done. You see, so often when you think even about the religious man, we often talk about what can save a person. That what can save a person is only the death, how that Christ died for our sins. We see this in 1 Corinthians, how that Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day. We see from John three sixteen that the only way you access that is through believing. He who believes is not condemned, but he who believes not in John three eighteen is condemned already because he does not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. See, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Jesus made it really clear. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the door. By me, if anyone enters in, he shall be saved. There is no other name given among heaven whereby we must be saved. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's Jesus. Now, some of you, you hear that. Maybe you, can't, maybe you come from a religious background. I don't like to call churches, this church, religious because religion implies that you're trying to work your way into God's favor through human efforts. The word itself doesn't necessarily even mean that, but that's what people think of when they think about it. They think of jumping through hoops. But perhaps you come from a church background where you were putting your confidence in your church attendance, your baptism as an infant, your confirmation or catechism, You thought that those were the things that were saving you instead of faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone. Well, maybe today is the day that you'd realize that the religious person can't be saved by rituals, can't be saved by identification with a particular church, can't be saved by doing or trying to keep the law through their own strength. See, you'll never offend anybody if you tell them that Jesus loves them And that he died for them and he wants them to go to heaven by believing in him. Most people don't get offended at that message. Nowadays a few more but generally speaking people aren't offended by that. What offends people is when you tell them what the gospel does not include. The good news of the gospel is 100% what Christ has done. There's nothing that you can do to add to it, contribute to it or, or improve upon it or maintain it. So when you tell them that your baptism can't save you they say, I don't agree with that. When you tell them that Your church attendance can't save you. They don't agree with that. You say that all of these things that you've tried to do for God, none of them can save you. None of them even contribute to your salvation. 100% of what was needed was Jesus Christ taking all of your sin, not some of it, all of it, and bearing that penalty, bearing that debt, paying that debt on the cross through the shedding of his blood. And as he shed his blood, he declared it is finished. All the debt that was owed by you and I had already been paid for by Christ. So the logical question is, if that is true, what sin remains for you to pay for if Christ has already paid it all? Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. If it's all been paid, what do you owe? The answer is nothing, but what does religion teach you? That now you must do your part. And that's pride that is keeping men from salvation. To truly be saved, you have to have humility and say, I have absolutely nothing to offer God. But thankfully, as a, though I was a wretch, though as I was a sinner, though I was unrighteous, though I was God, God's enemy, though I was dead in trespasses and sins, Jesus Christ loved me anyway. And he came and he paid a debt I could never pay by sacrificing his son in my place. And the moment that you believe that, the Bible says that you're born again. You're sealed into God's family. You're sealed by his spirit. He says he'll never let you go. So maybe you've been sitting here, part of you has been trusting in something else or someone else to save you besides Christ alone. Maybe today would be the day that you finally see it's all him. It's all him. It's all him. It's all him. It's It's only by faith. And you'll put your trust in what he's already done for you. Then you will rest peacefully tonight as you lay your head down knowing that I will go to heaven when I die because all that needed to be done has already been satisfied by Jesus Christ. And I just accepted that as a free gift. A free gift that was given freely and it was received freely by me. At this point, can I have the elders or whoever, and whoever's gonna help with uh, communion come forward and we'll go through.